We're standing here in Little Britain Street today to speak about the 12th episode of Ulysses, which is usually called Cyclops. We left Bloom, come out of the Ormond Hotel and walked up towards Pill Lane, which is now Chancery Street. This episode opens with someone who's nameless, but he is the narrator. It's five o'clock in the afternoon, and he says he has just been talking to old Troy of the DMP, Dublin Metropolitan Police, for the record. I was just passing the time of day with old Troy of the DMP at the corner of Arbor Hill there, and be damned, but a bloody sweep came along, and he near drove his gear into my eye. This narrator tells how he has been trying without success to collect a bad debt from a plumber called Geraghty, who had bought tea and sugar from a Jewish dealer and then failed to pay the money. He sees Joe Hines coming down from a meeting of the Cattle Traders Association in the City Arms Hotel. Joe Hines, for reasons we never find out, feels he has to tell someone called the Citizen what went on at this meeting and he suggests that he go for a drink. Come around to Barney Canaan, says Joe. I want to see the citizen. Barney Mavernings be it, says I. They walk around to Barney Kiernan's here in Little Britain Street. We, if we look around the corner, we'll see on our right the courthouse just down the way. As a matter of fact, Barney Kiernan's used to have over the door the Court of Appeal insofar as barristers used to adjourn there and discuss cases. Anyway, when they go into the Barney Cannons, they find the citizen sitting in the corner with a sheaf of papers and a rather fearsome dog sitting at his feet called Gary Owen. And it said that he's working for the cause. Now, working for the cause could have meant that he's working for the cause of the revival of Irish or for the cause of Irish independence. I think it was just the general thing. He was a nationalist, a rather narrow-minded nationalist, unfortunately. Stand and deliver, says he. That's all right, citizen, says Joe. Friends here. And Joe Hines amazes the people who are there by taking out a sovereign, which he got when he met Bloom in the newspaper office earlier in the morning, and Bloom said that the accountant was there. Of course, this was Bloom's hint that he might pay back the three shillings that he owed Bloom, but of course Hines ignored the hint and didn't pay him. And now here he is, with the money, standing drinks. Were you robbing the pure box, Joe, says I. Sweat of my brow, says Joe. Twas the prudent member gave me the wheeze. The citizen rants against the newspaper, the freeman, and even more so against the independent. And look at this blasted rag, says he. Look at this, says he. The Irish Independent, if you please. Founded by Parnell to be the working man's friend. Listen to the births and deaths in the Irish All for Ireland Independent, and I'll thank you. And the marriages. And he starts reading them out. Gordon, Barnfield Crescent, Exeter. Bob Dorn, we find, is drunk in the corner. And Alf Bergen, yet another character, comes in laughing. And he points out to Dennis Breen, who is passing with his wife, going from one legal office to another, still trying to take a libel action against the person who'd sent the postcard to him. Look at him, says he. Breen, he's traipsing all round Dublin with the postcard someone sent him with UP up on it to take a libel. <laughs> and he doubled up. Take a what, says I? Libel action, says he. For £10,000. Oh, hell, says I. 
it's intimated that maybe Alf Bergen is the person who sent it, and when he is more or less accused of it later in the episode, he doesn't exactly deny it. The citizen sees Bloom outside, but talk turns to hangings when Joe Hines inquires about an imminent hanging in Mount Joy. Alf Bergen takes out a sheaf of hangman's letters, which he would have got because he works in the sub-sheriff's office, and he casually remarks that he had just seen Paddy Dignam in Capel Street, which is around the corner behind us. Don't you know he's dead? Says Joe. Paddy Dignam dead? Says Alf. Aye? Says Joe. Sure, I'm after seeing him not five minutes ago. Says Alf. As plain as a pike staff. Who's dead? Says Bob Jordan. You saw his ghost then? Says Joe. Got between us and harm? What? Says Alf. Good Christ, only five? What? Everyone is amazed, and of course, does the cross question, of course, with him. It wasn't him. We took the liberty of burying him this morning and all that. And then Doran, typically drunk, starts weeping about poor little Willie Dignam. He's a bloody ruffian, I say. To take away poor little Willie Dignam. So Bloom comes in, and of course, Hines offers him a drink, and after a lot of wrangling, Bloom accepts a cigar. Talk turns then on capital punishment, and the citizen talks about the revolutionaries and the dead that died for Ireland and that sort of thing. And then Talk goes on to the Gaelic League, and there's more drinks, and the Bloom explains that he's just waiting for Martin Cunningham to go out to Dignam's house to settle up about the insurance. He unfortunately makes a mistake, a Freudian mistake, by referring to his wife's admirers instead of his wife's advisers, something that doesn't go unnoticed by the assembled people there. Well, that's a point, says Bloom, for the wife's admirers. Who's admirers? Says Joe. Uh, The wife's advisers, I mean, says Bloom. They talk about the cattle traders meeting, And then Bloom, to his consternation, hears that Nanetti, who would have fixed up about the ad for keys in the Freeman, had gone to London. And, of course, he's an MP, and he has gone to London to put the case of the cattle traders to the British Parliament. Gaelic games again come up for discussion, and Bloom typically (laughs) favours tennis. (laughs) which is not exactly a game that would have been played by those who are assembled there, and he doesn't get much support there. What I meant about tennis, for example, is the agility and training of the eye. Boylan is discussed in relation to a boxing match that we know had taken place recently, and of course this leads to talk about the concert tour and makes Bloom even more uneasy. I hear he's one on the concert tour now, up in the north. He is, says Joe. Isn't he? Who? Says Bloom. Ah, yes, that's quite true. Yes, a kind of summer tour, you see. Just a holiday. Mrs. B is the bright particular star, isn't she? Says Joe. Uh, My wife? Says Bloom. Uh, She's singing, yes. I think it will be a success, too. He's an excellent man to organise. Excellent. J.J. O'Malloy, whom we last met in Mary's Abbey, talking to Ned Lambert. They come in, and it's obvious that J.J. O'Malloy has got Ned Lambert to back the paper for a loan because he buys Ned Lambert a whiskey. And then the all-knowing narrator, who's really objectionable, we laugh at him, but my God, he's a terrible character, really. He guesses that uh, J.J. O'Malloy has also got Ned Lambert off the grand jury list. So there's a quid pro quo there. O'Malloy puts some sort of a stop to Bergen's gallop 
when he says the postcard could be a grounds for a libel action. So <laughs> this takes something of the joke out of it. The citizen goes on to rant about foreigners coming to the country, of course referring obliquely to Bloom. Bloom tells Hines that he needn't repay the debt, the three shillings that he owes him, until the first, if he would mention something to Crawford, the editor, and the freeman. There again, he's trying to make a deal with someone. Why is Nolan and Lennon, <laughs> Lennon, whom we saw in the Ormond Hotel, meeting Boylan? Why is Nolan comes in with him? And, of course, Lennon is sick as a parrot, as they say, having heard the result of the Gold Cup and lost his money. In came John Wise Nolan and Lennon with him, with a face on him as long as a late breakfast. The British Navy comes in for a lot of criticism from the citizen, and the citizen spits when Bloom says he's Irish, which of course he is. What is your nation, if I may ask? Ireland. I was born here, Ireland. The citizen said nothing, only cleared the spit out of his gullet. And gob, he spat a red bank oyster out of him right in the corner. Bloom then goes out looking for Martin Cunningham. He thinks he might be around in the courthouse. And Lenehan, sick, having lost his money on Sceptre and having been told that Bloom gave Bantam Lyons a tip for Throwaway, the winner, says that he's sure that Bloom had a bet on Throwaway and has gone off to collect the shekels again the implication against Bloom being Jewish. I know where he's gone, says Lenehan, cracking his fingers. He had a few bob on throwaway, and he's gone to gather in the shekels. Of course, Bloom hasn't had a bet, you know that. Nolan comes to Bloom's defence in surprise. He says that Bloom worked for Sinn Féin and had some connection with Arthur Griffith. Cunningham eventually arrives with Jack Power, whom we met at the funeral, and Crofton, whom we met in Dubliners, and Bloom returns. Cunningham sees that there's a row brewing because the rest of the people in the bar are convinced that Bloom has collected his winnings and is not buying a drink. I was just around at the courthouse, says he, looking for you. I hope I'm not... No, says Martin. We're ready. Courthouse, my eye, and your pockets hanging down with gold and silver. And, of course, Bloom, not having won anything, is quite innocent. Cunningham jostles them out to the outside car that he has waiting to bring them off to Dignam's house. The citizen follows him out and says, Three cheers for Israel! And Bloom makes the mistake of shouting from the car that, Your God was a Jew, Christ was a Jew like me! The citizen goes back into the pub, gets a biscuit tin, and as the car is wheeling off, throws the biscuit tin after it, and it clatters along the street, and the car goes off to Newbridge Avenue to do their business. And that's the end of the chapter. But within the chapter, there are various episodes written up in very high-flown language and parodies of different styles, which I haven't mentioned at all. This is just the reality of what appears to me to happen in the chapter. I don't know if you'd agree, Fritz. You gave a very detailed account of what's happening, Mm. and it's, again, hard to know exactly who is who. For the first time, we have consistently, apart from these interpolations, an eye narration. We have a perspective of a witness who is there who tells the tale. That's a new and very traditional kind of thing, new in this book. We have, a, I say, an unnamed character who has a keen sense, knows something bad about everything, is well-versed in gossip, and he knows something about everybody, has a low perspective, has also a very 
pungent way of expressing himself. Oh, oh, big ob, says I to myself, says I. That explains the milk in the coconut and absence of hair on the animal's chest. Blaze is doing the tootle on the flute. Concert tour. I think it's immediately funny, and some of those interspersed pieces are almost independently humorous. And the theme, uh, slowly, is Bloom, who at first didn't want to go in. Again, we realise he is not typical in the stereotype sense, uh, not somebody at ease in a pub. He has to be asked in. He instantly refuses a drink, he wants a cigar, obviously is careful not to waste money on alcohol. He becomes more and more an outsider. He also wants to take part. And though he is referred to as the prudent member in the beginning, he is conspicuously not prudent in this. He lets himself drawn into a conversation, argue with the citizen who is a bit belligerent and not easy to handle anyway. So he is not his usual careful self. I attribute it to his nervousness because at that time, it is now around five o'clock, Boylan has obviously begun his visit. There must have been some singing and God knows what else. So I attribute this to a kind of displaced aggression uh, so that he is not as cautious as he would normally be and lets himself drawn into the constant argues with somebody who is not uh, amenable to argument. The memory of the dead, says the citizen, taking up his point glass and glaring at Bloom. Aye, aye, says Joe. You don't grasp my point, says Bloom. What I mean is... Sinn Féin, says the citizen. Sinn Féin awan. The friends we love are by our side, and the foes we hate before us. And Bloom often gets off on the wrong foot, trying to deviate um, the topic from Boylan and boxing, uh, introducing British lawn tennis, which is, of course, a very gentlemanly sport. And Bloom cuts in again about lawn tennis and the circulation of the blood, asking Alf. Now, don't you think, Bergen? Moyle are dust to the floor with them, says Alf. Heenan and Sears is only a bloody fool to it. They also, when they talk about him, um, wonder about his virility and all that. He had children, all of it. He's a, a bit of a, yeah, a softy. Um, and also, I mean, he doesn't drink, which is often confused with virility. And so slowly there is a tension building up between Bloom and the citizen, and it escalates at a certain point when uh, Bloom talks about persecution speaking up for the Jews, and he is instantly questioned about his nationality. Uh, he says, I'm Irish. Then he is certainly asked to say what the nation is. A nation? A nation is the same people living in the same place. <laughs> oh, by God, then, says Ned, laughing. If that's so, I'm a nation, for I'm living in the same place for the past five years. <laughs> so, of course, everyone had a laugh at Bloom. And he says, Irish, I'm born here, and this is one meaning of nation, uh, birth and all of that. And a bit later, he bursts out against persecution. Robbed, plundered, insulted, persecuted, taking what belongs to us by right at this very moment. Says he, putting up his fists. Sold by auction off in Morocco like slaves or cattles. But he's instantly mocked. He certainly is proclaiming love in a sort of a pathetic way. That's not life for men and women, insult and hatred. And everybody knows that it's the very opposite of that that is really life. What? Says Alf. Love. I mean the opposite of hatred. I must go now. Just round to the court a moment to see if Martin is there. If he comes, just say I'll be back in a second. Just a moment. 
and he collapses and leaves. Uh, he feels he's not a great success rhetorically under the apprehension of looking for Cunningham, and then they talk about him. And that is then, among other things, when Lenehan certainly remembers this configuration with bantam lions, and, and it's only here that we can understand what happened at the end of the fifth chapter, that Bloom's I was going to throw it away was connected by bantam lions with a horse whose existence or name we did not know until right now. So that creates the impression in Lenehan that Bloom is the one who knew and is the only one who got a lot of money, that the odds were 20 to 1. So he would come back rich and still wouldn't pay a drink. I met Bantam Lyons going to back that horse, only I put him off it, and he told me Bloom gave him the tip. Bet you what you like, he has a hundred shillings to five on. He's the only man in Dublin has it. A dark horse. There's a build-up against him, and then, as you said, at the end, he starts, in a way, defending Jews, which is always pointless because you can't argue against prejudice, and he lists a number of famous Jews, Spinoza, Mendelssohn. Mendelssohn was a Jew, and Karl Marx and Mercadante and Spinoza. Marx wouldn't be a good name to mention uh, under the circumstances <laughs> in 1904, <laughs> and he even uh, confuses Mercadante with Meyerbeer. So Bloom, when he comes to two rhetorical climaxes, always fumbles, and then, as you already said, he proclaims himself a Jew and says even Christ was a Jew, which infuriates then the citizen, who, in a strange kind of irony, says, I'll brain that bloody Jew man for using the holy name. By Jesus, I'll crucify him, so I will. Give us that biscuit box here. Stop, stop, says Joe. So you have this irony that the non-believer outsider, Bloom in a way, speaks the Christian message and is crucified, uh, at least verbally, and then he escapes. So we have the clash between the native and the foreigner, and that, of course, is also where Irish history becomes Irish politics, and that all the grievances are aired by citizens in some kind of exaggeration, but of course they're real grievances. I mean, it's not that the citizen is in any way wrong, he's just a bit one-sided. And ultra-anti-Semitic. Yeah. No, I mean, he rants uh, against foreigners again. Uh, and uh, after all, Irish history, if I understand, is a whole series of invasions. Yeah. And, and defeats. Uh, yeah, and defeats then, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and the last one uh, were the British. And now the prejudices we've heard through Haynes and DC here come to a head. Mm. That's true. I'm surprised, though, that those in the pub would put up with the citizen in many ways. He's rude, he's overbearing, he's prejudiced. And yet they kowtow to him. I mean, Heinz goes specially to tell him about the meeting. He feels he should. I don't know what the citizen is. Mm -hmm. It's generally assumed that he's based on a real person. That was Michael Cusack, mm -hmm. who was one of the founders of the Gaelic Athletic Association. And his name is perpetuated in a stand there, the Cusack stand. Mm -hmm. I mean. And he was quite a refined man. Whether the citizen in Ulysses bears any real relation to Cusack, I don't know. Yeah. By the way, and you said uh, this is in the area of the law courts and mm. lawyers used to go there. There's a kind of legal aspect there. There's a lot of um, talk about arrest and, of course, the hanging, the execution. Mm. It's a violent chapter. You you have even say, Breen going around with his Breen, law books. Yeah, his uh, law books. And uh, even Bloom is sometimes like put to a cross examination. There's a, a lot of that. Now, what 
we haven't really said yet, and that's an important thing, because in the reading, uh, one is struck with it, that the action is interrupted every now and then by something that is different. Always not spoken. We have a very mm. oral voice, and then we have these interpolations that seem to be newspaper uh, reports or Irish legends, sports, uh, boxing mm. matches is being parodied, or Bloom's exit is translated into a sumptuous farewell with bands and all of that. A large and appreciative gathering of friends and acquaintances from the metropolis and greater Dublin assembled in their thousands to bid farewell to Nadia Sargos Zurum Lepotiverag, late of Mrs. Alexander Toms, printers to His Majesty, on the occasion of his departure for the distant climb of Sashaminosibrog Jugulias Dugalas, meadow of murmuring waters. They are usually, I would say, thematic expansions. The action is stopped and something is taken up and elaborated in a particular style. It's clearly a parody. For example, at one point, Cunningham, when the drinks are served, uh, he says, God bless us all here, which I think is a very common sort of thing that nobody pays much attention to. And this God bless is translated into a, uh, an elaborate procession with all the church. And when the good fathers had reached the appointed place, the house of Bernard Kiernan and Company Limited, 8, 9 and 10 Little Britain Street, Wholesale grocers, wine and brandy shippers, licensed for the sale of beer, wine and spirits for consumption on the premises. The celebrant blessed the house and sensed the mullioned windows and the groins and the vaults and the arrases and the capitals and the pediments and the cornices and the engrailed arches and the spires and, and the cupolas and sprinkled the lintels thereof with blessed water and prayed that God might bless that house as he had blessed the house of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Joyce works by exaggeration. In fact, Joyce called the technique, which was a gigantism. Yes, it's a strange thing insofar as when you read it first, you're annoyed with these things coming in to break up the yeah. action. And when you read them closely and pay some attention to them, they can become hilarious. Yeah. This chapter, I would say, is the funniest chapter, yeah. to me anyway, yeah. in the book. And if you ever want to justify why you waste time reading this book, you can give some of these uh, parodies, and they're immediately, you don't need anything else. No. Um, many of them contain long lists and catalogues. Mm. This mm. is also an epic tradition, of course, mm. Homer and all of that. Um, one of them is a list of Irish heroes in antiquity, mm. mm. and there's a lot of names that are known even outside of Ireland, some you take on trust. And then suddenly you have strange things, suddenly you have Goliath, mm. or Dante <laughs> Alighieri, or William Tell. Cuchulain, Con of Hundred Battles, Niall of Nine Hostages, Brian of King Cora, the Ardry Malachy, Art McMurrah, Shane O'Neill, Father John Murphy, Owen Rowe, Patrick Sarsfield, Red Hugh O'Donnell, Red Jim McDermott, Sogarth Owen O'Growney, Michael Dwyer, Francie Higgins, Henry Joy McCracken, Goliath, so it is this disruption. Uh, there's always something unexpected that comes that even makes a rather dull lists or lists that could potentially be dull very meaningful. Dante Alighieri, Christopher Columbus, St. Fursa, St. Brendan, Marshall McMahon, Charlemagne, Theobald Wolfe Tone, the mother of the Maccabees, the last of the Mohicans, the Rose of Castile, the man for Galway, the man that broke the bank at Monte Carlo, the man in the gap, the woman who didn't. But that brings me to another thing. Uh, naming is important. Mm. We have names and we have no names. The narrator is... Never named. Named. Uh, the citizen is a citizen, which is obviously uh, not the name. Names are played with a lot. And, of course, the whole 
throwaway, isn't it, depends on a play on words that Bloom did not make, mm. which in a way brings me to, as I always do here, uh, the Homeric side, mm-hmm. which I think in this chapter is really useful and mm. can be applied fairly well. You have in Homer, you have uh, Odysseus with 12 companions went to the Isle of the Cyclops. They only had one eye. They were giants. They weren't very sociable. Each one lived for himself, didn't care much about the other. They had no laws. That's <laughs> the legal aspect here. And uh, Odysseus and the Trevor went into the cave, stayed. They could have left. Odysseus also wasn't very careful as he normally is and then the giant came home closed the cave with a big boulder attended to his sheep and then took two of the greeks and dashed them to the floor and had them for dinner and then he said who are you and odysseus very carefully doesn't say his name appeals to the laws of hospitality and uh, this is brushed aside and odysseus is treated as a foreigner and they can't do anything they're closed in the next day Another two are eaten for breakfast. Then they find a large olive pole, which they sharpen. And in the evening, when the eats two more, Odysseus has brought along some strong wine and offers it to drink to the Cyclops, who does it, and then is drunk, and then they take out his one eye. Before that, the Cyclops has asked, and what is your name? And Odysseus says, my name is Utis, which means not anyone. It's relatively close <coughs> to Odysseus. Mm. And um, he says, uh, the scientist says, well, I, my guest gift is I eat you last. Anyway, when his eye is taken out and he's in pain and he shouts and the other cyclops come, they what what's happening? What's wrong? Why do you wake us? And he says, Utis, nobody, is killing me by rose and not by force. But since they already expect there's nobody there, they misunderstand the Utis as nobody. And they go home. In the morning, they have to get out of the cave. They can escape. And as they are on the boat, Odysseus imprudently again, I emphasize that, calls back, by the way, this should teach you a lesson. I am Odysseus from Ithaca who did it, and you should treat your guests a bit better. Revealing his name, which means that the Cyclops, Polyphemus, can pray to his father Poseidon, who then will persecute Odysseus for another almost mm-hmm. ten years. The giant throws a rock at mm-hmm. um, the, ship. the ship and misses twice. And all of this, we have the, the biscuit in, quite obviously. We have Bloom, the foreigner, the Jew here. I is often in the singular. And Joyce uses it in a way, you might say, metaphorically that the narrow-minded person only has one eye whereas most of us have at least a dual perspective.